This is The Solid Podcast. I'm John Bruner. And I'm David Craner. Solid is about the new hardware movement, the radical new way that technology in the world around us is being conceived, built, and connected. It's about design, electronics, software, networks, materials, and the horizons of technology, like synthetic biology. The next Solid conferences will take place on October 28 in Amsterdam and on April 20 through 22, 2016 in San Francisco. To register, watch videos, or sign up for our newsletter, visit solidcon.com. So today we got Ben Einstein. Ben's the managing director of Bolt, which is a hardware accelerator that has shops in Boston and San Francisco. These hardware accelerators are really interesting. A handful of them have popped up in the last few years, and they reflect the fact that it's a lot harder to get hardware off the ground than it is to get software off the ground. Yeah, it's true. I mean, in addition to figuring out how to design and build the product, there's lots of other problems that need to be attended to, like how does it get manufactured? How does the supply chain get put together? How is it shipped to the final customers? And startup accelerators like Bolt help to assemble a team of experts in all these different fields that can help new startups figure out how to get all this stuff done. Not to mention how to market hardware, which is very different from how you market software. When Ben came and visited us in San Francisco a few weeks ago, we started out with a great conversation about how to market hardware. What is NPS? Um, it stands for Net Promoter Score. And this is a really awesome tool for like trying to more or less objectively assess if someone is, you know, liking your product. And so it's a it's one question that you ask. You know, so people like all oh, get all crazy about surveys and, you know, bringing, you know, doing test panels of people, you know, trying prototypes and stuff. All that stuff is so noisy because it's all based on how you like run the experiment, right? It's super complicated. And so MPS is this pretty interesting system that has, you know, there's some like pros and cons to it. But the core question is how likely on a scale of zero to ten are you to you know recommend this product to a friend mm -hmm. and so it kind of gets away a lot of the biases of like what do you think of this product like would you use this again like which is very complicated psychologically but there's this really like basic function in your brain where like when you recommend something it says something really positive about or powerful mm -hmm. about what you think of a product yeah. and so you add up all those scores and divide by you know you're basically just averaging and if you have an mps above like 70 or so you're like you're doing Golden. great. Yeah. And so like, I think Apple is like 76 or something, which is really wow. high. It's pretty amazing though. Yeah. You can discern yeah. something like this in, in the amount of effort that like Uber and Lyft, for instance, put into getting you to recommend those services to your friends Yeah, more than other kind of standalone promotions that just involve like getting a discount and, and yeah. taking it and running with it. Yeah, totally. Um, it's clear that they are, they're both encouraging their existing customers to think about how much they like Uber and Lyft and they recognize the value of a of a, of a word of mouth, word of mouth recommendation. Yeah. I mean, virality yeah. is so important for any business and it's definitely one of the like major interesting aspects of like the connected hardware thing is that virality has become more of a possible thing now with hardware than it yeah. used to be, you know, 10 years ago. And, you know, basically only virality you had was word of mouth. Right. Right. Um, but now the fact that you can share things and, and the, all the software stuff that comes with it, like encourages people to buy things. I mean, look at GoPro, right? Mm -hmm. Like GoPro by many, I think by many measures is one of the more interesting, like quote unquote hardware companies out there. The camera's like, okay. I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if you guys have spent time with a GoPro. It's like actually a little frustrating to use. Yeah, yeah. Like the quality's good, but it's not amazing. No zoom. Yeah. Nice. It's like, yeah. you know, it's super like no frills camera. They yeah. like totally designed it around the use case. Cause yeah. like I've tried to use the GoPro, like when I'm like at, a house and like I don't have a camera and I like try to borrow my friend's camera and they're like oh yeah. take this GoPro and yeah. it's like really <laughs> irritating because you yeah. can't take the picture that you want but yeah. I've also been doing outdoorsy things with people who have GoPros and the way they've set it up is just really fast because they just have a super wide angle lens and yeah. like you can take a selfie really fast because you don't actually have to aim 
but but it's, like, it's it's yeah. so interesting to see because like their brand i mean you look i don't know if you remember this this company contour that mark barris used to run and i don't know eight years ago or whatever they were neck and neck it was like basically you know contour won on, in every review the product was better and you know the you had zoom and features and it looked better and it was made out of aluminum and it was really robust or whatever you know mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um but they didn't spend enough money to build a brand and gopro did mm-hmm. and it's this like parable of building companies that are focused on products that are like actually not that differentiated yeah um people don't buy a gopro because it's a good camera they buy it because yeah, oh look at that GoPro. guy jumped off a mountain i want to be like that guy <laughs> right you know? right and yeah. that's a really subtle and powerful and really hard thing to do as yeah a, as a company they're like red bull in the degree that's to which amazing. they've built a a, a lifestyle yeah, totally. association i would i would argue they're one of the best brands and their today. brand has achieved nonification as well. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, you've been called non, non-GoPro non yeah. sporting cameras, GoPros. GoPros yeah, mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. I mean, you, you kind of get to that point where it's like becomes a verb. Yeah. And, you know, I'm going to go GoPro that. Um, yeah. <laughs> and it, it sounds goofy, but that's, again, it's kind of going back to the NPS thing. That's like a really strong psychological signal. Right. Um, that a lot of people don't really weigh as heavily as it really should be. Like how likely you are to rate something or to share something to your friends yeah. is an incredible indicator of how much you like something. Right. But it gets out of the way of all the other biases of like asking explicit questions about something. So I don't know. I, I'm totally fascinated by like the psychology yeah. of product stuff. It's it's revealed preference. I mean, it's, yeah. you know, whether, whether you would actually like something enough to distribute it rather than surveys. And I mean, surveys are just are terrible as it's a way garbage. to collect yeah. Uh, information. Yeah, I mean, like, I would much rather have, like, a company that, like, is pitching us, you know, 30 people that have, like, used your thing and, like, really like it than a survey of 10,000 people that were like, oh, I would buy this one day if you get it to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is, which is part of my bias bias of Kickstarter mm-hmm. is, like, most of the people, or, you know, Indiegogo, any crowdfunding campaign, like, most people that are giving money, and I have a mild addiction, I, I'm mm-hmm. one of these people, um, you know, you, you have never used the thing. Mm-hmm. And so what you're really signing up for is, man, I would really pay money for somebody to solve this problem. I don't know if you actually solve it or not, yeah. Yeah. but I would pay money if you did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, And it's, so it's sort of this like a little bit of a red herring argument that I, I, I get frustrated with a lot of people putting value in, mm-hmm. in, in sort of like the crowdfunding like campaign thing. I think there's elements of it that are really good. Yeah, but it's a little over, like kind of like has overstepped its boundary a little bit, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. it is not an indication of a great company. So, what, yeah. so where where do you come down on kind of like where people should use a Kickstarter or Indiegogo campaign? Uh, I mean, it's different for every company, but the the trend I think almost always is you need to prepare for it in a way that's more of a marketing sort of like distribution thing than it is a like product launch thing, which I, mm-hmm. I think a mistake a lot of companies make. They they think of it as like, oh, I had this cool idea and like, you know, here's a video that I shot and made a prototype out of, you know, on a MakerBot. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, what do you think? Uh, and, <laughs> and I think that's how many people think of it in terms of the number of people. The more successful campaigns are much more diligent about, you know, I raised money beforehand. I built a team. Right. I built a bunch of prototypes. I have a really good idea of like what this is going to be. I might have hired a CM already. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they use this as like a sort of a stepping stone along yeah, the way totally to get the distribution. It's a marketing exercise. I yeah. see right. so many Kickstarters that are like really solidly cool ideas. And it's like, yeah, that's really cool. Like, yeah. okay, that's awesome. Oh, they're trying to raise $150,000. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. Okay. <laughs> Good luck with that. Yeah. yeah. So that isn't going to happen. So yeah. never mind. But like, yeah. 
or using using these. Uh, this is something that Brady Forrest has talked about a lot. Using your Kickstarter income and thinking of it as as your working capital. Yeah. Right. No, yeah. those are those uh, are orders. It's so that's, frustrating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Half yeah. of that money is going straight to your you know more than to half. the to the marginal yeah. cost of every of every product you're making. Yeah. yeah, yeah but then you that. have you know you have tooling and you have you know people make mistakes on stuff. They have to rework things. I mean, right, it's first right. time manufacturing. It's the error bars are huge. Mm-hmm. And the mistake is, I mean, we've seen this. I don't know. 50 times or something companies that we've talked to have done a crowdfunding campaign. They spent too much money and they're in this no man's land where they mm-hmm. have, they don't have any money left. They've hit no milestones and they have tooling half built. So they can't actually like make the product that they promised a bunch of people mm-hmm. and they're stuck mm-hmm. and no investor private or public or anywhere wants to put money into that. a thing yeah. that just to, you know, sort of like dig themselves out of a hole. That's mm-hmm. no fun. Mm-hmm. So man, it like really screws you up if you're not really careful about that stuff. I think for better or for worse, people are getting a little bit more aware of that. And I think in some ways it's good. In some ways it's bad because people are, I mean, I, I literally talked to people that spent half a million dollars preparing for a crowdfunding campaign, mm-hmm. wow. like video AdWords, um, yeah, yeah. you know, hiring an, uh, a PR campaign, yeah, uh, yeah. a PR firm, you know, it's what? Yes, <laughs> like, yes, yeah, dollars? yeah, yeah like, it's crazy, you know, right. I guess and, that's the other end of the spectrum of yeah. like expecting it to be a perfect on its own breakout success versus taking its marketing value way too seriously. But I think right. the best companies are the ones that have, they kind of do the best of both worlds. They kind of like, they raise money for like the hard stuff. Like I mm-hmm. actually would point to Form Labs as like a company that I think use crowdfunding really well. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I mean, for, for the listener, Form Labs is, is a, a company that David co-founded. Yes. Yeah. And, uh, and I'm not trying to, uh, you know, blow smoke up your ass, but um, I love it. <laughs> I, I, I think that Formlabs did a really good job of like heads down, you know, focusing on the really hard problems, using Formlabs as a, or sorry, using crowdfunding as a, as a stepping stone. And it was still late. You know, you still, you had solved a lot of problems yeah. before the product shipped or before you did the crowdfunding campaign. And there were still a lot of other problems to solve. Um, and that just goes to show how fucking hard it is to like build some of these products. Yeah. And I mean, I can only imagine if like, you know, you and Max and, you know, and Natan like, you know, tried to do this, you know, Two weeks after you had the idea to build a form labs with like yeah. the eighty twenty like prototype <laughs> oh, from the media yeah, lab, right, you know, right, right, right. It would be, be totally it would horrible for yeah. everyone involved. Well, because also once you start doing the crowdfunding thing, all of a sudden you have like these these thousands of new friends who want to mm-hmm. like talk to you all the time because they gave yeah. you money just like right, not because you're absolutely going to deliver a product, but because they want to be part of it, yeah. and it's like suddenly that's an entirely new thing totally. that you have to be sensitive to and everything. But yeah, no, I mean our plan was totally. You know, we raised money. We had money before the crowdfunding thing, yeah. but we figured that that it was a good. I mean, the thing that we realized was that it is it is more of a marketing thing than than a we're going to raise the money that we actually need to deliver this product because we don't actually know what's going to no, happen. Thing, yeah. and yeah. so we kind of went back and forth about it. But three D printing was so hot on Kickstarter at the time yeah. that we were like, okay, well, it seems like a good goal. We'll do it. And the key was to set. You know, make we made a nice video. You know, we didn't spend half a million dollars on it, but we spent you know, not, not an insignificant amount of money on just making sure that it was really nice. And then, um, and then set the goal low enough so that we thought that it might have a decent chance of being achieved, but like high enough that like, if the goal gets met, then it's like, holy crap, these guys like made this goal. And then that's kind of like what sets off virality stuff. And then, I mean, there was some other stuff in play too, as well. But I mean, I think that was the, I mean, the main thing that I see the comment I made earlier about the charging too much money for the Kickstarter thing is like, I, th- I see a lot of people's projects that are like really awesome, but then like the amount of money that 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 is put as the threshold is yeah, like it's insane. It's yeah. like, you don't get any of that money if you don't yeah. reach that threshold. So like, why, mm-hmm. why? <laughs> they're, you know, they're, they're seeing other people raise crazy amounts of money and they want yeah. to be a me too kind of thing. And I mean, one of the, one of the most frustrating things I see is 
this question of, you know, hey, hey, I think it's maybe not such a great idea. If you do a crowdfunding campaign right now, you should wait. Oh, well, like, how do I do customer development then? It's, yeah. it's become like the de facto way that mm-hmm. people, you know, engage with, you know, potential customers. Mm-hmm. And it's crazy. I mean, people have been doing product development, you know, manually for, I don't know, hundreds of years. I have no idea. I mean, when that started, but like the process of like doing something and talking to someone about it one-on-one is super important to anybody doing any kind of crowdfunding or product of any kind. Right, right. Um, and it's not, you know, getting 5,000 people to pay a hundred bucks for a thing in advance is not a you know, it's not a substitute for, for customer development. Right. Right. So yeah. let's take a step back for a second. Cause we, we <laughs> sure. really like launched Sorry, into yeah. this really cool question of, of yeah. you know, hardware, um, marketing and customer development. Mm-hmm. Um, you run bolt. Yes. Um, which is an, a hardware incubator. Yeah, sort of. I mean, we, we, we operate more like a venture fund. Um, mm-hmm. and so we, we really focus a lot on, on sort of like the strategic development of the company. Um, you know, companies can take space in our office if they like, but they don't have to, we have a bunch of companies that never do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, uh, I mean, maybe I'm just bad at like marketing and describing stuff, but we really think about it as like hardware companies just don't get a lot of the support that they really need. And m- because it's hardware, most of that support comes from face-to-face interactions. And so companies that spend more time with us and we have a big engineering staff and, and so companies that spend more time with us and the staff mm-hmm. really just get more out of, you know, spending time with us. And so we, we found that to be, you know, a good thing to do if it makes sense, but it's mm-hmm. not ma- mandatory by any means. What, what sort of stage does a typical company come to you? We, uh, we usually invest in what we call the pre-seed and seed stage. So these are companies that are pretty young, you know, two to five people, mm-hmm. um, pretty good sort of like duct tape prototype an idea of what they want to do in most cases. Although we've actually invested in companies that aren't really even sure what they want to do yet. Uh-huh. So uh-huh. We're, we're pretty, we're pretty early. Um, and we spend a ton of time in sort of like core product development, ranging from, you know, what is the thing that you need to build to, you know, who do you need to hire to actually do that? To let's build prototypes and mm-hmm. iterate on design and help them go to, you know, production and take them to China and all that stuff. And so what's the typical like background of, of someone who comes to you with a, with a hardware startup now? Are, are these people all electrical and mechanical engineers? Are they moving in that direction from software? Yeah, it's a pretty big range. I, I think that we, we have, there's definitely like two like poles that we seem to people sort of gravitate towards. One is the sort of um, existing entrepreneur that maybe has started a company before, maybe even sold a company or two before, um, but usually a software more more sort of oriented in sort of the software space mm-hmm. and are trying to do hardware for the first time. Mm-hmm. And again, it's most of these companies are really software companies. They just happen to have a piece of hardware that they have to deal with. And so it's actually a pretty reasonable like path um, to say, hey, listen, like I'm really focusing most of my energy on this, on this software thing. I've heard this hardware thing is challenging. And like, if I don't do it right, I'm going to be in trouble so it'd be right. great to have some help from you guys um so I, th- I think that that's one sort of like prototype we kind of see often from from people and the other are the like fairly young you know first company first time sort of like you know starry-eyed entrepreneur that is just getting off the ground maybe worked at one job or something went mm-hmm. to google for a year or two and it's like hey, i want to do my own thing now and you know i heard about this hardware thing and the idea i've been playing with is related to this kind of stuff so um so they sort of they sort of fit different like sort of different backgrounds, different sort of like like sort of mental images of what that person would look like, but they tend to need very similar things, which is yeah. kind of funny. Yeah, it's, I mean that that's consistent with sort of what we think about it at Solid, where you see yeah. this movement, you know, hardware becoming more accessible to a lot of people, and in particular, one of the ways I think you put your finger on it, yeah. um, a lot of these kinds of hardware products that you see now are, are really just endpoints to a software. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, platform, 
that's where the real value is, okay. right? And <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I, I, I sort of view hardware as almost like a, you know, it's a Trojan horse for software. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a really effective delivery mechanism for getting software into places where it currently just can't go. I mean, hard, software is actually like really limiting. Um, I think people forget about that in the tech industry. They, they don't realize like what percentage of your day is spent not interacting with a screen. And it's actually, mm-hmm. for most people in the world, is actually pretty high. For, you know, us in tech, it's, we spend yeah. a lot of time in email and like all that kind of stuff. And I, I, I understand that. But I also, you know, I mean, if you look at like the annual spend that you have as an individual person, like it far is, you know, is, is sort of weighted towards hardware and food and travel mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. and other stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think software is, is slowly sort of like marching its way into a lot of those areas um, through, you know, the sharing economy or through travel sites right. or whatever. Um, but hardware is still like a lot of a, a huge percentage of the time and money that people spend is still focused on like buying physical goods. And we've been buying physical goods forever since the advent of fiat currency, you know? Right. Right. Um, and so it's this very familiar purchasing paradigm. Like I, I, I talk about this a, a, a lot, but like, at least for me, like I am so sensitive about spending, signing up for a $9 a month subscription service. Oh, like, totally. Yeah. Like I'm like, Oh, Spotify, like Apple music. Like, oh man, I can't really decide. <laughs> like this is uh-huh, a huge decision. Uh-huh. You know, I will spend a hundred dollars on Amazon without even really thinking about it. Like, oh man, I need this new shirt or a, a new yeah, yeah, yeah. paper towels or whatever, you know? And you just like, you just don't, you don't process the value in the same way because you're so used to just buying stuff all the right, time. Right. Right. Um, so I don't, I don't exactly Standard. know how that fits into like the hardware startup world, yeah. but it's, it's definitely, it's very interesting to look at when a product has good market fit with, yeah. um, with the potential consumer, you just watch the ramp goes incredibly fast yeah. because people are just like ready to buy stuff like that. It's just like extra special, I think, yeah. because I mean, as a, as a hardware person, I think it's just extra special because like we live in, we live in the physical world and we've been in the, the, the time of like smartphones have come out and there is an app for that and there's an app for everything. But I think what people are remembering is that there are many applications where, yeah, there can be an app for it, but mm-hmm. having like a physical thing that you interact with yeah. is just better. Yeah. Like for so many things. Like, if, I mean, would, if you, would you rather have a real guitar or a guitar app? Yeah, no, like, of, like, course. Come on, you of know? course. I mean, but I mean, that extends to many other use cases of things and why you might want to have like an accessory and the answer to the question of like, well, why don't you just make an app for this? And it's like, well, because I want to do this activity, but I don't want to pull my phone out of my pocket and slide to unlock and like yeah. load up the thing and like log into my whatever. I, I totally don't... agree. But it's really important to like look at the user experience, which I think a lot of hardware companies forget about. Like uh, the example you were just giving, like, like with like a... I don't know, like a like a smart lock. You know, there are companies, mm-hmm. smart yeah. lock companies coming out. And when it works great, honestly, it does work great. The the ideal scenario is you leave your phone in your pocket and right. you get close to your door, it automatically opens. Chances of that happening though are actually it's a really hard problem to solve. And so mm-hmm. there are times where things don't go wrong, your battery's low and your battery. Because it has to work every off. time. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Your 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 sort of margin for error is really low. And so like the user paradigm that you often have to go through is like, okay, pull my phone out of my pocket, unlock, type my little code in, scroll three slides over, like pick up the yeah. app, launch the app, wait for it to launch. And I have to like hit the connect button and wait for it to connect. And it's like, yeah. I could have just taken my keys out of the pocket and like in 10 seconds or less, you know, just like open the yeah. door. Um, and so you have to, I think companies sometimes get a little like sloppy about like, oh, it needs to have software. I'm like, eh, sometimes it does, right, but sometimes right. it doesn't, you know? Yeah. I think that's one of the big miscalculations of the early home automation stuff that, yeah. uh, that we started to see a few years ago. Yeah. Um, I own, uh, Are you some... talking about X10? <laughs> <laughs> Did you order it from the back of like popular science or whatever? <laughs> yeah. Are they still around X10? Is that still I have company? no idea. <laughs> I, I think completely so. It seems like about the economy X10. would be good for them. But I they, feel like they are still around. Drop they, cam think, yeah. or one of these guys would just crush them yeah. with like yeah, user yeah. experience and 
Right. Although well, it was super cheap, right? It was like, they were like 30 bucks or 40 bucks. I, I remember the cameras being like, or I think it was you pay 200 bucks and you get like five cameras and some hub thing. Right, right, right. Yeah. But but they don't have any kind of like visible platform. I mean, the, right. I think what's right. what's killing, uh, you know, what's helping Nest and, and Dropcam um, kill that kind of stuff is just that they've they've figured out how to make this relevant to uh, the mainstream consumer or yeah. frankly, the, the very affluent end of the mainstream sure. consumer. Yeah. But, you know, people who live outside of uh, San Francisco uh, and have the disposable income to buy something like that. Yeah. But well, I think, great. I mean, the drop cam thing has, has solved that problem. Cause like through software, they've solved the problem of like having to set up your camera infrastructure. I mean, like even the name is like a strong branding inflammation yeah. of that. That's it's right. like literally it's super easy. Drop, drop it a, in, drop yeah. a camera there yeah. mm-hmm. and now mm-hmm. you will have a camera. Yeah. And there's a lot of software magic that has to go in behind that, that if they just tried to build the hardware by itself, like, I don't think it would have worked. Yeah. Yeah. This insight into, I mean, a lot of home automation stuff was pioneered as a hobby by yeah. people who are geeky and, and into this kind of thing. And, and you can see, um, you can see that in the assumptions that some of these products make about how you'll use them. Um, and, and to be fair, the early market for this kind of stuff was other enthusiasts and people who would enjoy this. So, you know, turning on your light bulbs by opening your phone and scrolling through, through an app, um, as I did for a while when yeah. I had those kinds of bulbs in my, in my office, it was like fun, but, um, you know, Dropcam and Nest have definitely figured out, um, what it takes to sort of appeal to a to an audience that doesn't necessarily want to do that and the, the drop cam ads that you'll see on hulu or something are yeah. are like clever uh, they approach the use case not the cool they're factor not of the, the they're situation not about the actual camera yeah right right they're about like hey your kid is having a party wouldn't you like to know about it um but those are always the best i mean whenever you see a company that's advertising features you always you always look the other way. It's just mm-hmm. not. It's just not the way people buy things, you know. And so when you're building a consumer product, I mean, maybe in, in the enterprise that's more true. But in, when you're building a consumer product, like the brand that you have and how aspirational it might be, and the way in which people perceive how they do what they do something with it and why they would buy it rather than what they're actually buying is way more important. I mean, GoPro. You look at a GoPro ad and you never even see a camera. You know, you see just people like jumping off. I mean, the, right. you see the mounted to their little helmet, like or whatever, you know. But it's not featured in any way. It's right, really right. about what they're doing with it. Yeah. And that's a very, very important thing for yeah. the way people, the way consumers perceive products. It's interesting to watch, to, to think back about how um, Apple created that that model for reaching the consumer, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, 10 years ago, um, well, would it be 10 years ago? Let's say, you know, seven years ago as Apple was really like hitting its stride and a lot of its product lines. Um, you know, the, the, the Dell uh, product lineup was yeah. like, 45 different laptops with with different alphanumerical (laughs) codes for like what their model was and and the distinctions between them were purely as you suggest like feature distinctions this one has this kind of processor this one has this kind of processor apple had you know two lines of notebooks within each line two screen sizes yeah and if you really dug down and hit the like tiny little i want to customize my mac yeah, button sure. yeah, yeah. then it would tell you what kind of processor yeah. it had or but how much were, memory w- one of the things I, I love that they do is there's never a part number associated with it i mean every mm-hmm. product of course is a part mm-hmm. number but it's not part of the buying experience mm-hmm. you're not looking for like a model number or spec size or anything like that yeah it's very i mean in some ways it's confusing right if you're an apple technical support person you want to identify which macbook pro someone yeah. has right. it's actually like non-trivial to figure yeah, that yeah. out mm-hmm. um as a consumer it's confusing it's, yeah, when you have yeah. to do that too it's like yeah. macbook pro parentheses 
which early year, summer yeah, 2015. Like, I don't remember what I bought that thing. <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah. But but that problem is much better than the front end problem of like trying to identify a product by its you know by 27 digits yeah, yeah. skew mm-hmm. you know that mm-hmm. they have. And so I think Apple's done a really good job of that. I think there's a, some I don't remember who said this. I think it was an Apple person about the the two by two matrix thing. If your product line can't yeah. fit into a two by two matrix, yeah, there was that, that was one of, the, one of the Steve Jobs stories from yeah. when he came back to Apple when they yeah. cut the whole product line because yeah. they did they did used to have like a massive sprawling yeah product line. But then I guess when Steve Jobs came back to Apple. Well, yeah, no, he made like a grid on the board and like two of the rows were like professional consumer and then the columns were like desktop and portable. And then it was like MacBook, MacBook Pro, like Mm -hmm. iMac and like Mac Pro. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then Mm -hmm. and then so then that's where everything else grew from was from thinking about what the actual what does someone actually want to do with this and how can we like illustrate to them that they can do that thing? Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's not always just about selling features. It's like, yeah. Yeah. It's, so, I mean, are a lot of your companies consumer-oriented? It's about 50%, actually. It's pretty okay. close. It's it's very interesting. We we, we keep pretty careful tabs on this. Um, I actually should know the actual number, but it's I think it's just under 50% is consumer, actually. Um, and But our investment ratio on consumer is probably, I don't know, one one out of a hundred or so something one maybe 110 um on the on the b2b side it's far lower and so and so we we are much more likely to invest in a given b2b company that we see mm-hmm. except for the fact that there are just so few of them um mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. are out there and it's one of these things that like we constantly talk about like please like more enterprise companies it's yeah, yeah. it's a much easier um hardware business to build mm-hmm. consumer mm-hmm. hardware is incredibly challenging you have you have mm-hmm. you know pressure on every single dimension of the business that's really hard to yeah. deal with and the worst part about it is that when you're really successful as a consumer brand it's sometimes more dangerous and more challenging um you know, your forecasts are you know now five percent difference in forecasts could be a difference between millions of dollars of product right, that you right. have to buy you know and so a small company is really um is really exposed uh in the consumer space when they're building hardware uh and so and so we we definitely we definitely really like the enterprise companies a lot yeah and, and the i mean the the buyers can be more sophisticated, understand the features, That's get right. into the features, right. kind of have yeah. a better a better relationship with the development team in that sense, yep. which is tending to think about it in terms of features. Yeah, and, and you you just enterprise companies tend to do a much better job of customer development, um, which is sort mm-hmm. of ironic because they're actually harder to find. But you know who they are, and right. so um, once you get good at being able to engage them and like deal with, okay, we're going to do a trial now and like get feedback and then iterate. Mm-hmm. You know, it's actually really hard to do that with, with consumers unbiasedly. Because they don't care, yeah. Yeah, and so getting the attention of a consumer is hard enough, right? But if you have some giant enterprise and there's a guy devoted to <coughs> buying your things all day, like right, you just talk right. to that guy, you know? Yeah, so is there a, is there a category of, uh, of of connected device of, of kind of, especially looking toward the consumers um, that you think is is particularly interesting or, or likely to hmm. see a lot of activity in the next couple of years? I really <laughs> love um, these consumable businesses. Um, they're so hard. They're, they're arguably the hardest kind of business in the consumer space you can build. Um, you know, so, so these are the classic um, razor handle, razor blades kind of models? Yeah, I actually find that a good cons- sort of consumptive business is actually not based on that model, which is, hmm. which is, um, and again, this is a psychological thing. Like when Are you talking you, about subscription or just things not that require that you buy yeah. more consumables period? Yeah. So like, I really like the Keurig model, even though Keurig makes crap coffee, like the actual right. business model is pretty amazing. And a lot of people don't realize how big of a business and how profitable of a business mm-hmm. Keurig is. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they sell $5 billion of coffee every year. It's insane. Yeah. You know, yeah. more coffee than anybody else in yeah. the world. And their position in the market is, is incredible for the consumer, right? Because 
um, Starbucks has already widened the the filter and totally. made people think nothing of paying four dollars right. for a coffee. Right. It costs a few cents to make coffee at home, right. but a, but a one dollar coffee How doesn't, much is a doesn't seem that unreasonable. Days? I think it's a dollar dollar fifty. You know, um, actually, I think if you buy them if you buy them in bulk, like I think if you're if you're a big company, you get them for you know fifty cents or forty cents yeah. or so. But you know, it's a hundred percent markup of the coffee grounds. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. like pretty amazing mm-hmm. business. Yeah. Um, but but so the the psychology is actually really different from in, in my opinion, and and some people think this is splitting hairs, but um, you know here I think we can talk about it. Uh, so the razor razor blades model, or like Brita and the like Brita filter model, uh-huh. or the printer and the ink model, sure. are all of this. It's all negative psychology, right? So like you buy a printer or a razor or you know a Brita you know pitcher, and when it runs out you feel crap. Oh fuck. I have to like go to the store and yeah, buy yeah, this yeah. thing. It's annoying because it's, it's re-enabling behavior that it used to have for free or you thought it was with the product. And now it's, it's right. lost a feature, which right, doesn't work right. anymore. Um, whereas a company like Keurig or Nespresso or a couple of companies that like, we're really excited about in our portfolio, they, um, the, it's a positive experience. You're like, Oh man, I want to mm-hmm. buy the coffee. Like I want, Oh man, do I get French vanilla? Do I get hot chocolate? Do I get this? And yeah. and so you don't feel this like negative psychology when you're purchasing the, mm-hmm. the, the sort mm-hmm. of consumable product. And again, it sounds like a little bit of a sort of small difference, but to me, psychology is everything. And yeah. if you, as a, as a consumer company that's dealing with sort of a consumable, if you understand the psychology of the thing that you're selling, you are going to build an incredibly successful business. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, given the fact that you can do all the other things, which yeah. is really hard. And, and, and actually that's, that's the real risk, right? The flip side of that business is that, okay, so you have to build software because right? a lot of these businesses are powered by software. So, you know, that's more or less okay. That's pretty hard to build a software company, but you know, people have done it. Then you got to build hardware. That's extra hard. You got to do both of those things now, which is, which is really challenging. And in addition to that, you got to build this crazy distribution system, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. is arguably the hardest part of the whole thing, because there's so few data points on how to actually do it. And so dealing with, you know, real-time logistics and inventory management and supply chain and like, all that stuff is so challenging yeah and you have to make these very complex uh sort of equations worth of like how many SKUs do you carry and like what level of inventory do you keep and the time to delivery and the freshness right, right. and all this other stuff so so there are all these dynamic variables packaging really hard. Uh, yeah 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 packaging and, engineering. and shipping cost you know uh-huh. you're, you're now shipping tons of things around import um, taxes if yeah. you're getting Duties, stuff customs in yep. china you get ready to pay 20 totally. percent yep. on uh, a lot of people don't realize you're that. bringing in yep. uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. and so it's just this it's just you're increasing the number of variables and it was already really hard. Yeah, uh, and yeah. so and so they're definitely like incredibly challenging businesses. But if you can build them, they're extremely defensible. I mean, Keurig will be around for a very long time, regardless mm. of how crappy their coffee is. Um, and it's because the behavior that people are used to is really ingrained. You have this device that's sitting yeah. on your kitchen counter or you're in your people office. People don't just stop going to the website that's right, one day. That's right. That's people right. don't just yeah. click unsubscribe. That's right. Like, it just doesn't have mm-hmm. already. It's mm-hmm. because there's there. this very yeah. high friction to like get rid of it. And so you have to like either be really bad or have someone come along that's really like 10 times better than you for yeah. them to change yeah. your behavior. Um, and so it's... It, it ha- but it's also not a negative psychological experience. So it has like all these really positive things for the consumer. To go back to consumables. Yeah. Um, so w- which which companies in your portfolio are, are modeled like this? Yeah. So w- we have a couple. Um, uh, one is called uh, Cuvée and they do uh, sort of like we call cured for wine. Um, they would probably not like that though because it's really not. You don't <laughs> want to it comes miss. in a pod and they <laughs> right. rehydrate yeah. it. Yeah. 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 Add water to your wine. Franzia. Um, <laughs> no, it's, it's, uh, so it's, it's really fascinating. The wine market is amazingly interesting because there's so much pent up 
crap. Like there's all this mm. friction in the system. And whenever you have that, you find these really interesting sort of learnings about markets. And so, and I'm, I didn't know anything about the wine market until, until these guys. Um, but so the average consumer spent, or the, in the U.S. on average, we spend about $40 billion a year on wine, which is kind of amazing, you know, more than coffee, just to give you context. Um, and only about 10 billion makes it to the vineyards, which is sort of silly. You, you think like, man, like Duckhorn has this amazing brand and everybody thinks about their wine and it's like this very rich experience. And yet, you know, they get, you know, a very, very, very low gross margin on their, on, mm -hmm. on, on their sales. And so I don't know if you guys have been to a vineyard um, recently, but they basically every vineyard will give you this card when you leave and they're trying to get you to buy the wine from them directly. Yeah. Um, because currently there's a, you know, there's a wholesaler and a distributor and a retailer all taking crazy margins because mm -hmm. of all the legal regulations and the, you know, laws and the state-owned liquor stores and whatever, you know? And so there has been this major push for vineyards to sell uh, wine direct. Only it's a really shitty experience because shipping glass bottles around the it's really country hard. Sure, sucks, sure. you know? Yeah. And they can't ship them at certain times of day. And there's all these issues around it. And mm. so um, this company has, you know, we think solved that problem. It's, you know, really hard company and product to build. Um, disrupting the wine industry has got to be one of the hardest industries yeah. to disrupt. Uh, you know, besides maybe the taxi cab industry, as, yeah. as, as Uber is finding out <laughs> sure, now. Sure, sure, sure. Um, and so they build, uh, you know, their quote unquote machine looks just like a bottle of wine. And so it's the same size and shape as a bottle of wine. Uh, it's made out of aluminum and, and glass and a little bit of plastic um, and has a full touch screen on the front and a series of uh, sort of like value. Uh, inside and you pop these cartridges which actually look like a sig like aluminum like mm -hmm. water bottle mm -hmm. um, that are full of 750 milliliters of wine and you sort of like plug the the cartridge whatever you want to call it the bottle of wine into the mm -hmm. this we call it the smart bottle um there's a little rfid tag on the top of every um every every bottle of wine and as soon as you plug the the wine into the bottle it says hey you know this is a duckhorn 2008 merlot um you know it's a little too warm you should wait for it to cool down and start huh. at this temperature um it preserves the wine for eight weeks so you can pour a glass and come back you know two months later and pour another mm -hmm. glass um and all this stuff is is shipped, you know, to your house overnight. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. And so you uh, reorder uh, from the bottle, right on the bottle, there's a screen, you say, you know, I want two more of these. It gives you food pairings and suggestions, sort of like Netflix, you know, tell yeah, you, yeah, hey, yeah. you drank cool. this wine really fast. Either you have a problem or, 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 <laughs> yeah. or you know, you should, you or should you buy should more. Or you should order another yeah. case. Yeah, yeah. Right, yeah. Right, right, right. Or, or try these other wines that are really similar. Or both. <laughs> yeah. And so like, I don't know. Like, you I, should place an order while you're feeling tipsy. <laughs> That's yeah. right. Yeah. Um, I... I have this thing, I mean, I like wine, like I enjoy drinking wine. I just feel when I go, I don't know that much about it. And so when mm -hmm. I walk into a wine store, I the number one emotion I feel is like frustration and confusion. Right, right, right. I'm like, I don't know like what I like. Oh, this rate, this thing has a 92 point rating. That probably is good or right, a neat right, label. That's like right. literally how I think yeah, about exactly. it. Yeah, exactly. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to choose wine on the basis of the taste of the label. Totally, yeah. 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 And, and I'm happy to spend, you know, $25 on a nice bottle of wine for like some friends coming over or whatever. Sure. Um, but I, there's all these negative aspects about it that I don't like. And I feel like I'm just randomly sampling wine without any cohesion or like knowing what I like, even though I'll be mm -hmm. like, oh, this wine was good. But then I just forget about it and mm -hmm. like never know what it is again. And so these guys have really <coughs> solved two main issues on two different sides of the equation. One is this, this sort of customer experience of like buying and, and, and sort of selecting and experiencing wine, which I think is all those pieces are broken. Mm -hmm. um, and the other is the sort of like distribution, logistics, supply mm -hmm. chain problem, which is really being, you know, is the main, the main source of that frustration 
is this series of people that are involved in getting a bottle of wine to your door really mm -hmm. inefficiently. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and so these guys have this really cool business model where they sell wine. You know, you're really excited to buy wine. It's not this negative experience right, of like, right. I have to go buy wine. Um, and uh, and it ships to your door next day. It's like all part of the sort of service that they provide. And I, we think it's a pretty beautiful product experience. Uh, it's still really early. Um, sure, and sure. this is a very hard thing to build. Yeah. Um, Le legally or, or physically? Physically, actually. Okay. Uh, yeah. And so the way, the way you sort of, sort of, the way we think about it um, from an engineering sort of constraint, it's not hard, like technically, it's hard to package everything and like get it into a product that looks really good and is functional and is mm -hmm. cost effective. Mm -hmm. to Handling food stuff is really hard. Really hard. Um, but the real trick here is, you know, imagine, you know, think about your standard bottle of Bordeaux or whatever. Um, and imagine you have to put, you know, a screen, a battery, Wi-Fi controller, there's a Bluetooth radio in there, um, a series of valves, um, you know, uh, you know, all the things that go into like a typical like smart product charging. So, so if the stuff. battery dies, are you unable to pour the wine? No, it's all it all works fine. Um, and so there's all kinds of tricks about how yeah. you do that. Um, but think about you have to put all those things into a product, and all this the volume you have is the thickness of the glass, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so when you really think about the problem that way, it's it's actually pretty amazing. Um, yeah, um, a sort of like problem that they've you know, pretty much solved. Um, and so we feel really, we're really excited about those guys. And we're just starting to do um, tastes now, or sort of like testing where we take it to, you know, to sommeliers and to restaurants uh -huh, and stuff. Uh -huh. and it is really cool to watch the reaction on people's faces. They're sort of like, what the hell is that? Yeah, thing? yeah, yeah. Because you just never see any disruption in the wine space. I mean, mm, people have been right. drinking wine out of glass bottles for 200 years or something. Right, anymore. right, right. Um, and so I think we're, we're pretty pumped about that. It's still an incredibly difficult thing to do uh, in terms of building a business. But man, if you can do that and capture some significant percentage of wine sales, like this is a huge company. Yeah. Um, how, what's the reaction been from the winemakers? It's been good. I mean, so there is a lot of skepticism, as there should yeah. be, and and as is sort of inherent in the wine industry. They have a bunch of vineyards that have signed up, though. Mm -hmm. um, and and the way um, their lead investor in their in their Series A round put it to me very very well. I was very nervous about this problem. I thought, man, you're really going to struggle to get vineyards to like try this new packaging. They're really used to yeah, yeah. glass yeah. bottles. Um, they're going to think of anything is going to be like boxed wine, which no vineyard wants to be part of, uh -huh. Uh -huh. Um, which is sort of silly, but. Um, and he said he had a really effective, I think a really good way to see it, which was there are, I think it's 30,000 vineyards in the world. You will definitely be able to get some of them because they're not differentiated from each other. Uh -huh. And uh -huh. so there are people that are desperately trying. It doesn't hurt you to put your wine also in a different container. Um, it's not like it's exclusive or anything. You know, you can sell your wine the normal way and put 5% of it into the system. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, uh, and and he said that, you know, sort of like the, the upsides of the system far outweigh the risk of buying, you know, one case of, uh, or one, uh, actually they're called a cuvee. It's a big like mixing thing mm -hmm. um, of wine. Yeah, they, they'll, they'll sort of try it, you know, sort of half half-heartedly. Um, some vineyards are super excited about it mm -hmm. um, as mm -hmm. like, man, we've been looking for something to differentiate our brand mm -hmm. for years. Um, and, you know, there's all these upsides. Uh, uh, and, and so really the only negative is you have to change the buying paradigm of wine mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, which is also a positive but it's seen by yeah. many people as you know you're not going to just walk into a wine store now and buy your wine you have to think about it a little bit in advance and that, that is probably the only like significant downside of of, yeah. of this business but um i think that the upsides are so great that people will at least give it a shot you know yeah yeah so this this supports the kind of the the nespresso or yeah um <clears throat> or keurig model you're yeah. enjoying buying something and is cuvee taking a a licensing fee on the on so it's the super packaging simple. or anything. So or? the way it works, it, they, and they effectively become a direct to consumer wine distributor, mm -hmm. um, which some people have tried to do, but because bottles of wine are still glass bottles are still involved in the system, it's really hard. So there's two main ways that sort of this this works in favor. One is 
excuse me, the, the vineyard is actually paid more money per bottle. They make more money by a significant margin. Mm-hmm. So they're highly incentivized to sell wine through Cuvée versus through their wholesaler and their distributor and their retail store. Um, they also have far lower shipping costs. About 40% of the cost of a bottle of wine is the shipping. Wow. Cost, which is kind of amazing. deal with the fragile and the Fra- Fragile and, and heat sensitive. Yeah. Yeah. sensitive and stuff. But if yeah. you put it in like a reflective mylar bag. That's right. That's right. And so, yeah. and so it's just a little bit of innovation on packaging um makes a huge difference in the cost of shipping so you know it, you don't get all that 40 percent out but you get i think i think it's somewhere in the nature in the neighborhood of 25 percent of that comes mm-hmm. out mm-hmm. um and that's a pretty powerful um sort of economic change yeah. when you look at literally billions of dollars a year spent by consumers or effectively by consumers are just on shipping glass bottles around the world mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. it's very very frustrating um and so uh that's sort of their, their core business model they sell wine it's a yeah. little cheaper than you would buy a glass bottle from a store um and the vineyard makes more money and cuvee captures a significant mm-hmm. percentage of that mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. it's it's a pretty neat sort of like everybody wins except for of course the retailers and distributors right right, right 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 um but we're, we're okay with that they don't add any value so right right, right. you know th- i think it's fine so so they're solving um you know there, there's a technical and electronics problem that they're solving right. and that's that's where your expertise really comes in mm-hmm. there's also this business model thing that they're solving um they're building a subscription business uh, i'm sure that it comes with a lot of the kind of um you know, excellent, clean, well-targeted marketing that comes with any of these kinds of new companies. Mm-hmm. And it, there's this question I've been thinking about recently, which is like, what what is a tech company, or what are the what are the parameters of this kind of hardware movement that that we talk about? What are what are the limits to this kind of hardware movement that we talk about? Um, you know, you, you've seen uh, um, a, a few companies emerge presented as tech companies that are really just subscription consumable companies, like. Mm-hmm. Um, Soylent, mm-hmm, for instance, sure. which is just, they're just selling food, you know, and it's a, it's, it's got a slick website. What do uh, they do? Uh, that's, that's this um, diet replacement uh, mix. It comes from kind of. They called it Soylent? Yeah. Oh, it's great. I think it's brilliant marketing. It's like, I, I had the same reaction when I first heard it. And I think that's exactly the point. Yeah. Because like everybody that has seen that movie. What's it made of? <laughs> yeah. So, so it's definitely people. It's made of people. That explained, explain for the listener what Soylent is. Yeah. yeah so the, the story is actually pretty funny. Rob, um, the founder of the company was actually in Y Combinator working on uh, software programmable radio. It's actually a really hard, interesting mm-hmm. technical problem. Kind of wasn't really going super, super fast. And he found that it was there were all these meals that he would have that felt like need like needy like i just have to eat i don't really want to do it i'm not going to cook a fancy meal i'm not going to go out to a restaurant i just like need to consume calories yeah Mm -hmm. and he said you know sometimes it would be all you know all three meals but more often than not it was one or two meals a day that you just felt like yeah i don't want to deal with this that's right i just like i don't want to sit here and like deal with food i just want it to be done and i want to be satisfied and then move on um and so he started experimenting and like researching like incredible i mean he's a very smart guy and spent a lot of time like really trying to understand like the medical implement i guess implicate but also like the new technology developments that have happened in literally just the last 10 or 15 years, we can now keep people alive indefinitely in a coma in, in mm-hmm. the hospital, which mm-hmm. actually is a surprisingly new thing. At least it was surprising to me. I thought this was something we've been doing forever, but uh-huh. no, turns out not. <laughs> um, and so he does all this research and, and starts formulating and really experimenting on himself with these um, sort of like mix with water meals. Mm-hmm. And and so you you know you put water in this powder and a little bit of oil and you shake it up and, um, and it has basically everything you need to survive and a bunch of extra stuff that he sort of like this is probably good for you don't really know 
Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Kind of uh, healthy, calorically balanced, yeah. nutritionally complete, but so zero it's like flavor. A drink. Yeah. So it's like a, yeah, yeah, so it's, a milkshake. It's like a smoothie. Yeah. Oh. Um, and yeah, you just like put it in a blender or shake it up, and it's like it like tastes a carnation like carnation and some breakfast or something. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. It's, it's diet, the, diet slim fast yeah, basically. Yeah. But yeah. it is it is marketed well. It is not designed to be a diet thing. It's designed mm -hmm. to be sort of like change your lifestyle thing. Yeah. And 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 I think a lot of people um, sort of like make negative comments about Soylent because it is often sort of a marketing oriented thing. And it's really funny to me because mm -hmm. so many consumer companies that's all they are. Yeah, 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 they're really good at marketing. Sure, yeah. um, no, they're they're taking a generic thing that's coming from uh, from China and and you know putting a brand on it. And, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. distributing and, it. And and you know to be fair, like they do spend a lot of time and energy working on how to formulate this thing and yeah. feedback from customers. They're like you know they have all of the the sort of like like features of a tech company that's like really experimentative. Yeah, and MVP. This, is, this is a really good question because yeah. I was I was thinking about the same thing the other day. So have you guys heard of Graze? That's the no, so no. it's the food service that. I've been gotten into lately, hmm. um, and it's basically I have one of the things. It's like um, you you sign up, and they have like 150 different little snacks hmm. on their website, huh. and you can rate like this sounds good, no, okay, maybe like whatever, and then you sign up, and then once a week they send you a little box with four random little snack boxes in it, and so like it's got like these cool. like little like sometimes yeah. it's like granola bars. Not that. Sometimes it's, sometimes it's like, you know, like, like interesting blends of like dried fruits. They've been doing soups lately. So sometimes huh. they have like a little packet. And you like, like mix with water? Yeah. It's yeah. got like a little like tum yum paste and like dry, uh -huh. Uh -huh. dried stuff and everything. It's pretty, it's pretty awesome. But I was thinking about it because like it feels like, like one of these like, like the branding and the way they do it and the way that they've like remixed how you do it feels like one of these new hardware companies, but mm -hmm. like it's literally a vacuum molded, it's a vacuum molded piece of plastic that I receive in the mail every right. week with like a granola bar in it but like the way that i came into it and it was found you know it was recommended to me by by uh -huh, a friend uh -huh. and then i went to the website and then i <laughs> got excited about being able to have choices in what kinds of foods that i wanted and then it gets delivered to my door for like a subscription fee and they mm -hmm. constantly ask for feedback like it feels like one of these things yeah i mean i, I think also if you guys want to do this i have a subscription <laughs> <laughs> there we go there we go <laughs> but, yeah. it's it's, but, yeah, it's a good question i yeah. think it very much is a hardware company um it's you know i think my definition of hardware is like pretty broad but i i sort of think of it as like if you want to categorize companies into two silos, which I think most people do, I, two is a nice number to categorize things into. Um, software companies don't have to deal with any atoms, you know, and, and the fact that you as a, you know, snack delivery company or a, you know, Birchbox or, um, or, you know, Cuvée or a consumer hardware company building, you know, thermostats mm -hmm. or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, they all have these very similar problems that are actually really different from software problems. They're yeah. sort of like, but are they similar to each other? Yes and no. I mean, like, so all those companies are dealing with, uh, you know, brand, they're all dealing with warehousing, they're all dealing with logistics and supply chain management. Yeah. yeah. And, and mm -hmm. it turns out those are the real hard problems of hardware companies. And this is one of the things that really frustrates me about young hardware companies. They think like the really hard problem is product development. And product mm -hmm. development is actually like pretty easy. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, it's hard to do exceptionally well. You know, if you want to build an Apple quality product, that's really hard to do. But, you know, building an acceptably good product in the beginning, which is all you need, mm -hmm. um, which is something that as a product person hurts to say, but it's really important, <laughs> um, is is actually not rocket science. What is rocket science is building a brand and a distribution system that works as a business. And that is very, very, very hard. There's just like so many more unknowns in it, yeah. right? Like, yeah. I mean, you can have this perfectly formed vision of your product. That yeah 
springs forth like Athena from Zeus. Yeah. <laughs> but then the question is like, how do you assemble all the people and all the infrastructure that's going to like actually yeah. get that yeah. product to the people? And how are you even going to let people know the, about the, it? The, like, the way I always right. say it, which again hurts me deeply as a product person, is a company with a crappy product and great distribution will always outperform a company yeah. with a, a fantastic product and shitty yeah, yeah. distribution. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's, uh, it's so frustrating. Um, yeah. But it is, I mean, there, there is definitely a, a massive correlation between success as a business and ability to market. Because you're not going to get paid if your thing doesn't get there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But this, this is a big part of why I say that, like, every company is a tech company yeah. now, yeah. right? Yeah. Now that we've expanded, we've expanded it in this direction. I mean, it used to me that technology was just about um, electronics and developing sort of the processors and then the software that mm -hmm. works on top of them. And then we came to this model where um, tech companies are developing applications that reach out gently into the physical world, like, yeah. you know, things that run on your mobile phone. So like Uber uh, and Lyft. And and now we're talking about like this, the same model for how you start a company, develop a product, distribute it is now becoming the model for like, for everything. You, you could argue that Ford and GM are tech companies, that uh, Caterpillar is a tech company. Yeah. You can be a farmer and be a tech company. And, you know, you just use, it's, it's more about sort of this, this kind of R and D outlook or, or method and how you think about developing stuff. To do stuff better and like thinking about yeah, measuring your progress. It. And, and it, it reminds me very much of this, um, my friend uh, Brad Feld, who's a VC um, uh, out of Boulder at uh, a firm called Foundry Group, um, has this, I think, this really good way of looking at a similar thing, but with the the people behind it. And so he, you know, he, he sort of calls this like, is entrepreneur really mean anything anymore? And a lot of people apply the term, original mm -hmm. term of entrepreneur to all this stuff that like doesn't really make sense. Mm -hmm. And and what you're really looking for when you're like talking about an entrepreneur, someone who's going to build like a high growth, like dynamic business. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and it's the kind of person that that person is. Someone who's going that, to build an enterprise that's right and and so what matters is i think at least like with the the question of tech versus not tech is really more about like do those people think like people that are running a you know high growth venture capital finance software company um, mm -hmm. are they dealing with sort of mvps and dealing with feature iteration and are they hiring people that are really looking for the long term of a company yeah. and care about equity and you know that that's really what powers many of these companies that's the dna of the company and so what do they sell snacks or you know software mm -hmm. um it's mm -hmm. a, to me it's actually like it's more about like the mentality that people have and so rob and the soylent story like i think it's 100 percent a tech company mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. yes they sell you know powdered food mm -hmm. um and and i think a lot of people poop poo that because it's not like a typical like high technology company but i bet if you peek under the hood of that company the founders the way they build the team the way they're thinking about the company is actually much more similar than different mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. uh, uber yeah, um, yeah and, totally. and, and, and i think that that's a really awesome thing that has yeah. only happened in the last couple of years yeah, like I mean, yeah because i mean like uber is definitely a tech company yeah but like they have an app that lets you get a taxi yeah you yeah. know like yeah. i mean under the other definition of tech company that would yeah. not that would not fit but for some reason the way that they've done it and like the whole yeah yeah the way I, that it fits together and everything is clearly a i've tech. sort of begun to grow this um sort of like I don't know, mentality of looking at the world, which is like, everything is way harder than you think, <laughs> like uh -huh. everything. And we live in this incredible world where the most basic things that you look at, you know, this blanket or a chair or something seem really simple and really like just commodities, but actually the ecosystem that goes into making and delivering and servicing these things is astounding. Well, here's, here's a good one. How many, how many transistors are in a one block radius of us right now? That's a great question. <laughs> uh, some number I can't pronounce, you know? Yeah. Yeah. 
But, I mean, there's there's a, a billion in a typical processor, yeah, in a typical right? processor, and if there's 100 people around us and they each have a processor yeah, with a, a billion a people on their phone, yeah. it's like yeah. 100 billion, then there's like some other stuff. So but it's easily it's, in yeah, the trillions. Yeah. Yeah. But it's this way of thinking about the world, which is, is, is really like appreciative. Like we have these incredible things around us. And I feel like people, especially in Silicon Valley, as I've been getting to know this area more since I've started spending a ton of time here, are just really like to be dismissive um, mm -hmm. and say that this thing is not hard or, or this problem is I could solve that in a weekend kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. And it actually, it's actually, I think almost always that's wrong. Um, and, and there is, I think, an incredible amount of appreciation that anybody should have, especially someone like me who has to say no to a lot of companies that I think mm -hmm. are interesting mm -hmm. but may not be a fit for our business model. Um, and, and just being like, this is really cool. And I am, you guys, you guys have done a great job building this company or this product or whatever. And I don't know exactly if it makes sense for us, but we really appreciate what you're doing and this is probably good for the world or whatever. Yeah. And, and I think that line of thinking is maybe like, it just make, it makes you appreciate stuff more. And like yeah. when I fly, I fly all the time now, back, back and forth from here in Boston. And like when I'm on a plane, it's like, this is an, an amazing thing. Oh, it's incredible. Yeah. yeah. And it's yeah. like, people just like complain and are shitty all the time. And it's like yeah, actually yeah. like pretty awesome. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I don't know. Yeah, no, it's incredible. I mean, the, the complexity of the world around us. And, and I think uh, Silicon Valley does tend toward a kind of uh, arrogance yeah. that, that people in these existing industries um, find uh, funny or threatening or, um, you know, some combination of the two usually. Um, but I, yeah, there, there's it, a lot. It, it's, 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 like a, it's like a bias towards people that don't think the same way that they do. You yeah. know, you look at, I don't know, a company like a giant company like Boeing or somebody, you know, and not, not yeah, many yeah. people think that's an interesting business. And yet, I mean, the intelligence and dy dynamic sort of like thinking and problem solving ability of these companies, I bet rivals almost any tech company in the world. Oh, totally, totally. Um, yeah. And, and, and all the more remarkable for the fact that they have to be large and bureaucratic and formal yeah. in their, in their processes, right? Yeah. You cannot yeah, design totally. a jet yeah. airliner, um, with like six casual <laughs> yeah, engineers right. sitting around yeah. and being on Slack, MVP, right? you know, don't worry guys, we're going to iterate. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we'll add another engine. Yeah, yeah. 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 Exactly. Version two will come out and replace it free. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's, 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 it's really funny. It, it reminds me of, um, do you guys know this company Proto Labs? Um, yeah. which I think oh, is yeah. one of the more fascinating companies out there right now. And I was having a conversation with a very well-known uh, VC in Silicon Valley, uh, uh, I don't know, maybe two months ago or so. And, um, I started talking about this company Proto Labs who he had never heard of before, which is not unusual. Um, and, uh, I started describing injection molding. He goes, Oh, wait, 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 wait. Can injection molding really be a big market? <laughs> That's exactly how I felt. Like it was like it was like hand to forehead kind of yeah, thing, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. And and it's like this is it's just different. And it's it's like people have this this sort of blind spot around companies and markets that are just different from what they're used to spending time in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's like that to me is such a good example of like you realize like every fucking piece of plastic around you right now is right, made from this right. process. It is dominant. Yeah, in yeah. The way the world works, it's just yeah. something that you don't think about every yeah. day. Yeah. Well, so software people, software engineers in particular, um, are in the business of like abstract abstracting problems into um, super, you know, uh, formalized and modularized, uh, yeah, modularized yeah. ways of thinking about things. Yeah. And so they kind of look around the world and, and are like, oh, why does that work that way? This would be the ideal way to do it. Let's yeah. implement it, yeah. um, which fails to take into account all of these things that tend to frustrate those same people, which are like weird regulatory structures or the fundamental conservatism of some industry or the costs of failure. I mean, this is something that I think a lot of people in, in this area are surprised by when you talk to someone at an auto plant and, and, oh, why don't you do, why don't you, why do, why do you use this hundred thousand dollar industrial control when a $200 computer could do the same thing? Um, 
oh, right, it's because if the plant goes down for a minute, it costs a million dollars, you know? Uh, so the cost of failure is just completely so different yeah. in, in a lot of places. Uh, and, and so much of it's so non-linear too, because it yeah. takes place in the real world. Like that like that that slide that I had in the Poffit Factory talk at Solid about how we were like, okay, we, we tried really hard. We put all of our ducks in a row. We shipped all the things. We ordered all the things. We did everything. We got back. It's time for solid and then the look at the shipping status in UPS and it's like the shipment is in Alaska and uh -huh, it says uh -huh. your shipment has been delayed because of mechanical failure we'll let you know like when we know what the schedule is and it's like uh, 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 yeah. you know you can't you just can't prepare for that right it's right. non-linear because it happens in real life there's no make file that builds exactly the same way every single time right right you can use that I mean, so what's awesome about proto labs is that they kind of consider themselves to be a software company that happens to make physical stuff because their their secret sauce is the whole is the whole I guess you guys know what Protolabs is but for for our listeners who may be unfamiliar with Protolabs they're an injection molding company in Minnesota who who have this software and online injection mold design tool like designing injection molds is is very difficult because you have to figure out how the plastic is going to flow into the mold you have to be an expert understanding like what angles so that the, your part gets ejected from the mold properly and traditionally you have to employ a lot of mechanical engineers to design a good injection mold but Protolabs has made this automated well, it's not completely automated but but a serious suite of software tools that's super easy to use and you can upload your 3d file to their website and it'll give you mold flow analysis and it it kind of cuts some of the use cases from from like what you could do if you just had like full-on injection molding in a team of engineers but like even though it constrains the design space a little bit you can get your stuff done for like way faster and in many cases way cheaper than doing a traditional injection molding process like they can cut a mold they can like turn a mold out in like 24 hours or something it's ridiculous and like, but, but the whole reason why they've done that is because they've decided to like, look at building software and then they built their business on top of like letting you, you know, take orders mm -hmm. with their software and then they machine it for you. There, there is a whole category of companies, which I think are fascinating that fall into the sort of proto labs, um, sort of mentality, which is take an existing solved problem. I mean, it, mm -hmm. it, it, there's no variability injection molding, except for like, yeah, a little bit of tolerance here and there. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, it is, there are books, textbooks written about how to do this and the equations and all that stuff. Yeah. Um, but it's it's traditionally superhuman powered. You know, there's a bunch of people that it takes to get these things to run. Mm -hmm. um, so there's this company Plethora that Nick Pinkston sure. runs mm -hmm. here, here, you know, here in San Francisco that's doing a sort of a similar thing for machining. Um, we have a company called Tempo Automation that does PCB production. Mm -hmm. Same thing. You know, this is you know you walk into a PCB fabrication facility anywhere in the world and it's you know just hundreds of people like soldering shit together. Right. It's, uh, it's yeah. a process where you 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 call up some dude on yeah. the phone yeah. and you're like, hey, I'd like a quote for, yeah. for this, and he's like, yeah. fine, fax us. I Exactly right. yeah. That, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, yeah. And it's and it's it's like I understand why it's like that, and in some ways it's still pretty amazing that that functions. But like, it doesn't need to be like that anymore. It and can, so it could be better. Yeah, that's right. And so and so there are I think there are a handful of companies. There will be many more um, that are sort of enabling enabling optimization in stuff that nobody thinks about. Um, mm -hmm. And so these are very unsexy businesses to most people, but to me, they're yeah, amazing. They're well, I think it's I think it's like you know you can let me know what you think about this, but for me, like it feels like the hardware industry is kind of lagging about twenty to thirty years behind where the software industry is, as far as like the sort of second level connections and tools mm -hmm. you know like software stuff really took off like now that we have now that we have things like github and like node.js and like ruby on rails and things you know i mean programming has been around for a very long time but like in the past few years we've really started to get these tools which allow people to quickly exchange information and help each other out with problems mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. like and there's just so many tools that help you do stuff but like whereas with the software side with whereas with the hardware side of things i mean i was 
using, I think it was like, it was either, I don't want it might have been analog devices, filter design tool or someone like that. It was one of the, it was one of the filter design tools from somebody that was trying to design an analog filter, like electronic filter, like about a year ago. And the performance that I was trying to push out of it wasn't going to work. And I like crashed the tool out and I got an error message that was like, Hey, this isn't going to work. If you have questions, please fax us at this number. <laughs> no. Okay. And I'm like, this is, this is the state of the art tool that like the major component manufacturer is pushing out to use. Like I was just talking to my friend about how sweet the new features of like Node.js and GitHub are and like how like, you know, they're telling me to fax something like, you know, we need to get to the point where our tools and our connections like within the industry itself you know, allow things to grow a lot faster. So, I mean, well. I, I, this is a thing that I think a lot of um, makery, maker pro, whatever you want to call it, people um, talk about. And I think it's sort of a philosophical debate about like where this is all going. Mm -hmm. And to me, I, and maybe I'm just inherently skeptical about some of these things, but to me, uh, hardware is not as modular as software yeah. and will never be. It's inherently mm -hmm. not as modular. Um, Eventually, I mean, one day we'll have Neil Gershenfeld's dream of like completely programmable matter and everything. Maybe, I mean, it's it's really hard. I mean, that's with, like that's like 50 years from now. The way now, I think about though, it is like, like the current aspects yeah. of science and, yeah. and, and commerce, you know, which is probably the next, I don't know, 10 or 20 years. Yeah, exactly. It's really hard to envision anything yeah. really changing significantly in terms of optimization. I mean, like to me, <clears throat> the biggest, <clears throat> excuse me, the, the biggest changes in hardware over the last couple of decades have been, you know, the advent of the contract manufacturer, which sounds again, unsexy, not cool. Mm -hmm. 20 years ago, if you were Apple, you wanted to build a product, you, you had to bought build a factory, a factory yeah. and you bought yeah. <laughs> machines and you set up a warehouse and you had inventory management and, you know, you had minimum wage employees soldering stuff together and you, they worked for you full time. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Um, the contract manufacturer is a very strong step in the direction of modularization. It is. Yeah. Is the contract manufacturer really that recent? It's pretty new. Yeah. It's, I, I mean, no so idea. they've been around in a small way for a long time, but mm -hmm. for, um, you know, for, for volume for, production. That's right. Yeah. yeah. For so for like large companies doing high quality, high volume production, yeah, it's yeah. been a pretty new thing, you know, 15, 20 years. I mean, look at Shenzhen. It was a fishing village, sure. you know, until 30 years ago. Yeah. Um, and so, and so you, you have to really take a step back to like appreciate how significant of a change that is. I mean, 20 years ago, if you were a hardware company, you couldn't, it was so hard to do any of these things. Even just walk in the door and talk to someone about manufacturing something for you is really bizarre. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, or, or, you know, like the advent of, again, this is sort of silly, but like the advent of the smartphone. I mean, the idea that, um, you know, you carry a phone in your pocket is really cool, but it massively changes the economics of buying components that go into phones. And that sounds really silly to most people and totally unsexy, but the ability to buy touch controllers and screens yeah. and buttons and resistors and memory and all this stuff that are fundamental to every single piece of hardware that's being built in sort of like the connected hardware world come from the fact that there are a hundred million smartphones sold every quarter or right. whatever it is. You know? right. that was, yeah, I mean, that was the, like the, um, Going back to the, the 3D printer thing, you know, the yeah. form one's a stereolithography thing, so it uses yeah, a laser. Yeah, blue laser, yeah. And I mean, yeah. the big thing that we realized was, okay, this process has been traditionally um, dominated by people who use ultraviolet yeah. lasers, but you have to have a tube and they cost like $10,000. And we were like, wait a second. Oh, Sony, <laughs> you just finished spending you know, however many billions, billions of dollars, of dollars yeah, figuring out how to make a diode laser that's yeah. 405 nanometers. Like... Oh, so maybe that's the reason why no one has tried to do this approach yet, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. because it's just like a new technology that's actually becoming accessible to other areas as a result of someone else spending a huge amount of money in like figuring out how to develop the basic technology. The dividend but, from the Blu-ray wars. Yeah, to, yeah, exactly. uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, the, yeah. To borrow Mark Andreessen's term. Yeah. yeah, but but I mean, those are amazing advancements that 
are, are sort of working towards modularity, but they're really solving a different problem, mm-hmm. which is, yeah. which is, um, you know, the delivery of, you know, incredibly high quality, incredibly cost effective goods that are still very custom and very manual to make. Um, and so I think the startup companies get this huge benefit from that being done. Um, I think it's pretty different than like the way software and the PC revolution really happened. I think there are elements of it that are really similar. Um, but I, I don't, it's really hard for me to envision a day when like a consumer like in their like, you know, underwear at home, like designs a product and it ships the next day. And, you know, I just, I just don't see that happening. Um, it's sort of like why I don't know if I believe the customization, the mass customization stuff. I think like there are elements of that that make sense for like, mm-hmm. like Invisalign. I mean, it's been a mass customization yeah, company sure, forever, sure. but nobody thinks about it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I think that there are a bunch of companies that like want to have like all these custom, you know, printed things for your ears or whatever, and, or for your shoes. And I think there's, they're tough, um, to, to, for me to see that as a long-term viable product, it's, it's really hard because people tend to actually care less than you think about customization. Yeah. Um, they really care about, um, a product that works really well, reliably, and is cost-effective and customization is like off access for all three of those right things, and you if know? you're and if your company is producing a, a, a good product that's extremely well designed anyway then, yeah, then, then they shouldn't care. need to customize yeah, it yeah. yeah and i think that there is an element like i think beats has done a really good job of like skew proliferation not customization it's like man I, there's 27 different colors of headphones yeah. mm-hmm. um and these match my taste and my style they these allow me two to differentiate match i'll buy the one that i like that's right that's right and yeah. so it's it, it gives you choice but man if they did a program where every single person designs their own headphones i bet that would be a a loss leader and b people wouldn't really care about it yeah, yeah. um or, or like i mean nike has had the shoe program where you can like customize your shoes i don't know if they killed that yet but i think i heard some rumors that they were going to i used to have customized new balance yeah. uh, i think it's neat shoes yeah they, they were neat but i definitely designed uglier shoes than yeah. any of the, the, <laughs> the, yeah, the artists commercially there, yeah. available ones yeah. Um, yeah i think that's the next big thing that needs to be solved is like how much do people i mean every, everybody wants to be a designer but not that many people actually can be designers and so the next big question is like how do those people like be able to affect their change upon the world, but like without having enough slack to hurt themselves. I, you know? I do. Like, you're not going to give everybody a copy of SolidWorks. So that's of just not going to happen. Yeah. But like when the iMac came out and there were five colors, everyone went crazy because they could uh-huh. get one that was the color that they like. So like somewhere in between. And I, well, the thing that's hard, I think, is that I think it's different for every single type of product. The, I mean, I like the way Shapeways does it, where they have these sort of like parameterized products. And so you can like, yeah. oh, I want a ring and I want to adjust like the width and the number of spirals or whatever. And you like mm-hmm. drag mm-hmm. sliders around and you get this custom product. But that's such a niche thing that, I mean, my mm-hmm. grandmother yeah. is never going to buy a ring on Shapeways. Um, yeah. Or at least I don't see that happening for a very long time. And, and, and so... I think what you learn about psychology is that people like to be a little bit different, but they're not willing to pay a huge amount of money to have something totally unique. It's very unusual. I mean, in terms of like the big, the meat of the market, you know, the, the early adopters and the, and mm-hmm. the late adopters mm-hmm. that I think that's actually pretty rare. Yeah. Well, this has been an amazing conversation. <laughs> yes. yeah. This is great. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I much prefer these to like the question and answer, like back and forth, you know. Oh, totally. Um, yeah. Interview so style. So tell things. us, what do you think are the most exciting emerging trends for 2015? <laughs> yeah. And so, compare yeah. them in percentage terms yeah, to 2014. Right. That's right. Yeah. No, this, this, we, we started this podcast series because uh, we noticed we were having a lot of amazing conversations with people. We run into really terrific people in putting the solid program together. And yeah. this is a, Hoping Way to just capture capture, yeah. capture the kinds of conversations that we enjoy having and listening to. Cool. So, well, it's always fun to talk to you guys. So, yeah, it's yeah. been a pleasure. Thanks. If people want to um, find you, where do they where do they go? Uh, it's pretty easy. Uh, our website is a really good jumping off point. Bolt.io. Um, also, anybody can email me. Ben at Bolt.io. It's really easy. Awesome, Ben Einstein. Thank you so much. Thanks, Thanks Ben. See you later. For links and other information related to this episode, visit radar.oreilly.com. 
If you liked this conversation, you'd certainly enjoy the Solid Conference, coming to Amsterdam on October 28 and returning to San Francisco in April 2016. To register, visit solidcon.com. Until next time, I'm David Crane. And I'm John Bruner.